From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On this show, more voices from the Poor People's Campaign. This week, dozens of people are arrested at the U.S. Capitol and across the country. The original Poor People's Campaign that we are a continuation of talked about a realignment of the economic system in this country so that it can address the needs of those who have been poor, locked out, left out, and those who have been on the margins. The campaign says that black, brown, and poor communities are at the epicenter of the ecological devastation that is making our Earth uninhabitable. The dirty energy system is a system of planetary destruction, and its paradigm is racist, it's sexist, it's anti-immigrant, it's imperialist, and it's oppressive. But in an alternative world, a renewable energy future doesn't have to be. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Health and environmental justice was the theme this week for the fourth week of the Poor People's Campaign. At a mass meeting held Sunday night at Union Temple Baptist Church here in D.C., Rhonda Hamilton, a community leader who lives in public housing, connected the issues of environmental justice and housing justice. My community faces environmental hazards every single day. The very air that we breathe is filled with contaminants that can damage our lungs and cause us to have various respiratory ailments such as asthma and COPD. I reside near Buzzard Point, which is a massive contaminated brownfield site and the future home to the DC United Soccer Stadium near Nets Park. It is also one of the most flood prone areas in this city. As DC prepares to become a resilient and dynamic city, We are among pockets of communities which have been forgotten, overlooked, and neglected to carry out extremely aggressive redevelopment plans that were not designed for us. In other words, build by any means necessary, even at the risk of elimination and displacement of people in poverty. Many public housing residents like myself, feel that we are on borrowed times within our own communities. And this is true for a number of other public housing residents. Our rights to live in quality environments free of hazards and poor living conditions are violated, stripped away, and taken by force. Just as they have been for many other residents throughout this city. This is a vicious cycle that has to come to an end. We are human beings and should be treated with dignity and respect. When children and vulnerable residents in a community are purposely exposed to chemicals and hazardous environmental waste, it should motivate every person who represents them and hears their story to take action. I'm here today to share our story and encourage you to take action. I'm also here today to fight to break down the barriers that cause my community to suffer at the hands of other city leaders and representatives 
who failed to step up to the plate to create better health outcomes for us as residents and also failed to work to improve the lives of those in this city without means. If we want to create a better tomorrow, our work must start today. Most change often begins with only one person who chooses to make a difference in the lives of others. I encourage you all to be that one person. The Poor People's Campaign is in the midst of launching a national movement and is holding a mass rally to fight poverty and not the poor on Saturday, June 23rd on the National Mall. After headlines, we'll hear more voices from the Poor People's Campaign. And this week, more news from D.C. connected to discrimination, poverty, and environmental justice. In a pair of letters on Thursday, Democrats from both the House and Senate demanded the Trump administration immediately end its policy of tearing migrant children away from their parents at the U.S. border, a practice that has provoked nationwide protests and which human rights advocates across the globe have denounced as cruel and evil. The New York Times reported in April that more than 700 children have been separated from adults, including more than 100 children under the age of four. And this week, environmentalists, industry groups, and even conservatives slammed Trump's proposal to use an executive order to bail out his buddies in failing coal and nuclear power plants. Not only do these plants emit dangerous and dirty energy, the proposed bailout would come after Trump has already given a massive tax cut to the rich, while average consumers would wind up footing the bill for this bailout. And at the same time that Trump is pursuing this dirty energy bailout, Reuters reports this week that Trump's 30% tariffs on solar panel materials has led to the cancellation of $2.5 billion in solar projects and cost thousands of American jobs. Now for more international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. And as we speak, Gerald, the G7 meeting of countries is set to kick off in Canada, but many observers are expecting sparks to fly. They're calling it the G6 plus one because of Trump's tariffs causing a lot of problems this year. So what's your take on it? Well, what I find striking is the conflict that's going to be expressed at this G6 plus one summit in Quebec. Already, French President Macron and Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau have sharply critiqued U.S. policy. There's even some question as to whether or not the 45th U.S. president will even attend. This is symptomatic of the fraying of the so-called Atlantic Alliance, which in some ways is chicken coming home to roost because the so-called allies, particularly the EU nations, have capitulated in recent decades to U.S. policy, not least with regard to Moscow, and recently and with regard to Iran, where they're expected to go along with the U.S. breach of the nuclear deal. Uh, The wider picture, it seems to me, is that the United States and U.S. imperialism is now being squeezed by China, and it's forcing U.S. imperialism to seek to loot its allies via tariffs, seeking 
by a trade war to turn European nations in particular into vassal states. The EU is proving to be a giant with feet of clay. Uh, part of the problem is, is that the United States uh, clamored for the European Union to accept nations like Poland and Hungary, and now Poland and Hungary are virtually enemies within the gates. That is to say, they're U.S. allies, which are quite hostile often to Berlin and Paris. Interestingly enough, a French official just this week said that trade wars oftentimes lead to shooting wars. And that's a very ominous development. Well, also this week you have this U.S. ambassador to Germany, Richard Grinnell, raising quite a bit of controversy, saying that he was there to unite right-wing parties in Europe, and some Germans are calling for his ouster from the country. Well, understandably, I think one leading German official said that he was acting like he was the viceroy of Germany, which is no way to treat a powerful ally. But that brings us to the recent press conference by President Putin in Moscow, four and a half hours long, where he also was asked about the possibility of World War III, ominously enough, in light of the new turn in U.S. policy in Washington. I should also say that he is en route to China uh, for a summit meeting with President Xi Jinping of China and also a meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a counterpart to NATO, the U.S.-led North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, this will be the fifth time in recent months that Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi have met and the 25th encounter in the past year that includes phone calls. And I know of loving couples who haven't had 25 sure. encounters in, in the past uh, year, not to mention these two men. The question in terms of the wider picture is that once again, as the North Atlantic Alliance seems to be fraying, the alliance that is countering it, featuring Beijing and Moscow, seems to be solidifying and strengthening. So is, that's in addition to, I think there was a meeting of the BRICS nations also this week? Absolutely. The foreign ministers of the BRICS met in Johannesburg. The group is going to be chaired after the summit next month by South Africa. Their major product projects include a focus on African development, particularly in infrastructure, roads, airports, electrification, etc. Once again, the strengthening of the BRICS reflects this objective weakness in the North Atlantic Alliance, which has their historic hole on Africa being challenged by the BRICS, and that is in turn causing more tension between and amongst the North Atlantic nations, which you will see manifested, I'm sure, in Quebec in the next 24 to 48 hours. So I guess for the f folks who don't know, I don't want to you know, speak in alphabet soup. So when we say BRICS, we mean Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. So while we are talking about these countries, I know that there is a lot of unrest in Jordan. I know it's not connected to those countries, but it's over austerity and people kind of in the streets uh, around living conditions there. Well, it's a very important development that's taking place in Jordan for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, in addition to castigating Trump in Quebec, also on the agenda in Quebec will be a heightening of austerity, which has devastated Britain, amongst other countries. These mass protests in Jordan 
have led to the sacking of the prime minister in the wake of the International Monetary Fund demanding an end to subsidies on food, which would have doubled food prices. The backstory is is that the Saudis, who had been pro- providing a substantial subsidy uh, to the Jordanians, have pulled that subsidy in recent months because from their point of view, the Jordanians are not backing this tacit Saudi-Israeli alliance that's supposed to be targeting Iran. Likewise, keep in mind that the Saudis just a few months ago virtually kidnapped the Lebanese ambassador, excuse me, the Lebanese prime minister because he was perceived as being hesitant to support this tacit Saudi-Israeli alliance targeting Iran. And you know that we're marking the one-year anniversary of the Saudi-led blockade of Qatar, the Persian Gulf nation, which also Saudis have a contradiction with. It's difficult for Jordan to back the Saudi regime, not least because the Jordanian population has a significant Palestinian influence, and that Palestinian population in Jordan would be up in arms if the Jordanian regime were to join this tacit Saudi-Israeli alliance. The question is, if the Saudi pressure on Jordan continues, will the regime crack? Well, speaking of the Palestinian population, Trump's ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, told journalists reporting on the Gaza massacre that we should keep our mouths shut. And this has really brought a backlash from journalists, groups around the country, and just news organizations on the left who are trying to report on the massacre and the fate of the Palestinian people. I thank you for keeping us up to date on that part of the world that gets very little press and very little coverage or analysis. I've been speaking with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. His most recent book is The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. In Community Happenings, the March for the Ocean is happening here in D.C. and in communities around the world on June 9th. The D.C. March is scheduled for 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. and will begin at the Washington Monument and end at the U.S. Capitol. Organizers say the action is for healthy oceans and clean water for future generations. Also on June 9th is the start of the 26th annual commemoration honoring the millions of African ancestors who perished during the Middle Passage and those who survived. Activities will take place around the world, including Washington, D.C., Senegal, Nigeria, Brazil, Cuba, and Detroit, Michigan. A 9.30 a.m. awards ceremony at Union Temple Baptist Church in Southeast D.C. will be followed by a procession to the Anacostia River. A complete schedule for the two-day program is at adasiancestors.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, voices speaking on environmental justice. Stay with us. The ground beneath my feet, I know was made for me. There is no anyone place where I belong. My spirit's meant to be free, and soon now everyone will see. Life was made for us to be what we want to be. Your world, 
It is good to uh, know that you're all in various teach-ins around the country. Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris, our other co-chair, was in Detroit on yesterday as we were standing with people there uh, who are part of the Poor People's Campaign, saying that, again, we have a right to live fighting for health care and against environmental devastation. Uh, I was in Kentucky uh, with coal miners and we have black lung disease and others I'll talk about in a minute uh, facing environmental devastation and facing a state where the governor now is trying to take away health care for 100,000 people, trying to roll back uh, the, the Affordable Care Act in Kentucky, one of the places where it was working in some powerful ways. So our work is cut out for us, but we are ready as we say forward together. Not one step back. Let me say forward together. Not one step back. And we know that there are five interlocking injustices. It's systemic racism. And let me say a minute about racism because of the climate we're in at this teaching. I think it is very dangerous for us to focus on the words of racism and not focus on the works of racism. We cannot let somebody like what Roseanne Barr said be centerpiece in a discussion about systemic racism. Systemic racism is voter suppression, massive voter suppression that is happening in ways we haven't seen since the 20th century and the civil rights movement. Systemic racism is the refusal to give immigration justice and proper pathways to citizenship and losing 1,500 children. Systemic racism is what's happening to the indigenous native communities and how they are still under the rules of war policies from the 1800s and how their lands are still being poisoned. And if we allow racism to be discussed simply in terms of words, and we do not get to the works of racism. The works of racism is all of the policies, the judges, excuse me, that are being appointed to the federal bench now, many of them who have been against voter protections, many of them who are very regressive in their legal theories and thinking. Systemic racism is when you know that a policy, whether it be a health policy or a living wage policy, 
uh, will have a what's called in the law a disparate impact on black, brown, and poor communities. That's what racism is. It's a power term. It is not merely about the words. And I think we in the movement must be careful because right now in the media, they will spend two weeks on the words of racism and not two minutes on the works of racism. And that's why in our movement, when we say racism, systemic racism, we are talking about proven, palpable, real voter suppression and racist gerrymandering. We're talking about unjust immigration laws. We're talking about mass incarceration and the, uh, and the new Jim Crow. We're talking about the continuing injustices in the in, in indigenous community. That's what we mean when we say racism. When we talk about systemic poverty, we are refusing to use the normal language of the government, 39 million. We are connecting that to the, uh, to, to the other 100 million people who are low wealth, working poor, and poor, that are mostly white, women, children, and the disabled. When we talk about health care uh, underneath poverty, we're talking about 37 million people not having health care, even with the Affordable Care Act. And, and, we, and our country being the only country of the 25 wealthiest countries that does not, that do not offer, that does not offer uh, some form of universal health care to all of its citizens. When we talk about ecological devastation, we're talking about land, water, and air. We're not just talking about Flint, even though Flint is in our mind, but we're talking about the, the four million families in this country who have lead in their water all over this country where they can buy unleaded gas in those countries and can't buy unleaded water. We're talking about the way in which the air is poisoned in a place like Duplin County when a multinational country tried to come in with a chicken manure burning plant claiming that they could burn manure and create electricity but they didn't tell the people that when you put fire and manure together, it creates airborne arsenic. We talk about war economy. We're talking about the ungodly cost of war. The fact that we pay more in war now, two times more than we did at the height of the Vietnam War. We're talking about the fact that we now spend 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on war and only 15 cents on education and health care. But we're also talking about militarism and imperialism. The fact that the United States now has over 800 bases around the world. We're talking about the fact that since um, World War II, all of the countries we have bombed have been pretty much brown, black, and Muslim countries. That's forms of militarism. We're talking about the fact that CEOs that make weapons make an average of $19 million a year while a combat soldier barely makes $30,000, and many of our soldiers have to get on food stamps. When we talk about Christian nationalism as that fifth form of interlocking injustice, we're not talking about whether somebody says, I believe in God. That's easy. The question is, what does your belief in God cause you to do in public policy? That's the question. Anybody can say... They believe in God. Anybody can say they have a personal relationship with the divine. But 
one of my professors taught that if whatever relationship you claim with the divine doesn't produce a quarrel with injustice and a quarrel with inequality and a quarrel with hurting people, then it, it makes your claim terribly suspect, terribly suspect. Uh, the question is not, do you say you love God? But when you pass a policy, does that prove you love people? Particularly the most vulnerable, the poor, the stranger, the sick, the marginalized. Those are the ethical questions as it relates to um, our, our religious values. So whenever we have a religion, religious uh, um, uh, theories, religious propagation that says if you just are against gay people and against abortion and for prayer in the schools and for gun rights and for tax cuts and for America, I, will you, God bless America and nobody else, uh, that's, not, <laughs> that's not in line with our deepest religious traditions. It's not even in line with our deepest constitutional traditions. And so we are called to challenge that kind of theological malpractice, particularly when that malpractice has, it begins to consecrate injustice and begins to provide a safe space for injustice without critique. When that kind of religion allows religionists to go in and pray P-R-A-Y for politicians while they are praying P-R-E-Y-I-N-G on the poor and the vulnerable, but then we have to raise a moral critique. Now tonight, as we talk about everybody's got a right to live, health care and environment, I want to frame this in two ways. Three ways, excuse me. First, in the, in the Old Testament of the Bible that is recognized by Jews, Muslims, and Christians, one of the earliest names for God, because in the Jewish tradition, they never said God alone. It was always a characteristic of God. They didn't just go around saying God, 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 God. You know, they would say God, our banner, or God, our peace. It was always an attribute of God. They were almost afraid to just say God. And one of the earliest characteristics or descriptions of God is found in the 15th chapter of Deuteronomy. It says, God is Jehovah Rapha, healer. Before you can get out of the Torah, God is described as being on the side of healing. Jehovah Rapha, Yahweh in Greek, Rapha. Jehovah Rapha. God is a healer. God is against Pharaoh who doesn't heal. Pharaoh who has policies that provide some people health care and other people they don't get it. That's not God. God is Jehovah Rapha. Healer. So all of those who claim all the time so much about God and as I often say, they say so much about what God says so little and so little about what God says so much. How can you claim God and then vote against health care when God is Jehovah Rapha? In the New Testament, if Jesus did anything, he set up free health clinics. In fact, one scripture in, in Matthew says, and he healed them all. 
all. Not some, not the ones that could afford, but all. In fact, Jesus was often noted to go find people when they were sick and were being left to die by the society of that day and the Caesar-like, Roman-like power structure that said only the 1% really mattered. Jesus would go where someone was sick without health care with an issue of blood. Jesus would find someone who was dying. And, it, and constantly the text says he healed them all. How strange it is that when we hear the battles over health care and we hear the rolling back of health care, we hear all these loud voices when it comes to making sure a baker doesn't have to serve a gay person a cake coming out of the church, certain parts of the church. But then quietness on the issue of health care. But then some claim to follow Jesus. You can't follow Jesus and not be in the business of healing. And uh, he never charged a leper a copay. He never said to someone, you've got to come back. Where's your card? For Jesus in the New Testament, for God in the Old Testament that's honored by Muslim Jews and Christians, healing is a human divine right. The third place I want to frame this from is I wish people would stop saying Obamacare. I wish they'd have never named it Obamacare because that was a way of racializing. I wish Obama had said, don't call it that. You know, the Affordable Care Act. And I wish when Democrats had the House and the presidency, they would have gone on and done single-payer health care and been done with this thing and had some guts. Because if they had, they would have been being very Republican. Now, I didn't say extremists, because what we have, we have a lot of extremists who have hijacked the Republican Party. My granddad was a Republican, but he was a Teddy Roosevelt Republican, a Lincoln Republican. And in 1912, it was Teddy Roosevelt who said there were five moral issues that ought to be taken care of in the public square. And two of them were health care and protection of the environment. This is 1912, not 1921, but 1912, not 1972, but 1912. And he set the stage for his cousin, Franklin Roosevelt, to come along with Social Security. And why did that happen? Teddy Roosevelt was moved by a movement called the Social Gospel Movement that dared to say there are some policies that should not be an issue of one party or the other. They are fundamental moral rights. He also said a living wage, or basic minimum living wage, was a moral issue. Health education, public, was a moral issue. Labor rights was a moral issue. Getting money out of politics, this is 1912. Check it out when you can and read the bull, the bull speech that he gave when he broke with both parties. And so... I want to say that maybe it's because Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he never said, he, you know, he said it was a moral right because he knew the Constitution says that we must provide for the common defense. And if you are hurting people 
environmentally, through environmental dev devastation, and denying them health care, that is not the common defense. It does not establish justice. It establishes injustice. And it surely is not promoting the general welfare. And so, whether it's coal miners in Kentucky or Apaches in Arizona, or whether it's in eastern North Carolina, people fighting against uh, chicken manure burning plants, or whether it's in Flint, Michigan with dirty, nasty water that the authorities knew was dirty and nasty and destructive before they ran it into the city, or whether it's in Alabama where black and white poor people still live with open sewage in their backyards because the politicians and the business communities will not bring the sewage lines to them, or whether it's in Chicago where we're headed in another week, the, the environmental uh, devastation inside of the city of Chicago, whether it's the brother yesterday that spoke in Kentucky who had black lung, who's from Harlan County, one of the 30, uh, one of the 30 poorest counties in this country, or whereas I heard yesterday, Liz, it's about the poison happening right in Louisville, inside of the city of Louisville. Or whether it's the long-term environmental uh, damage that has gone on in New Mexico because of past nuclear testing and the cloud of nuclear radiation, the stuff that just has impacted the Navajo people and so many poor people. Or whether it's the 37 million people that do not have health care even with the Affordable Care Act, or whether it's the states that are now trying to roll back health care and add so-called work requirements, which are nothing but code words to suggest to people that somehow Medicaid expansion is, is giving free stuff to these lazy people, rather than saying that health care ought to be a right, period. Or whether it, it is all the states that, all, that passed voter suppression laws and denied health care. In other words, if, if, if you look at a state and you know that they, did, they didn't expand health care, you can also bet they'll suppress the vote. Flip it over. If you, if you look and find out they passed voter suppression law, you'll know that they also, it's almost a, a direct line between those two policies. But wherever it is, we know that it's immoral, it's unjust, it's wrong. And that's why the Poor People's Campaign has a set of did-you-knows that you'll hear later on tonight and also a set of demands that you'll hear later on tonight. And that's why we have invited experts here tonight to join us in this Teaching Tuesday because we want our movement to have depth of understanding so that at every turn when we put our bodies on the line of civil disobedience, when we protest, when we register people to vote, we can do it from a very deep place because as Dr. King said, people will know, and most of all, we will know, that we have a legitimate discontent. That we're not just doing this because it's a fad. We're not just doing this because it's the 50th anniversary of the Poor People's Campaign. We're doing it because we are determined that America will be better. That America has to be better. And that we're not ready to give up yet on the soul and the heart of this country. Now, God bless you. Take care. If you're just tuning in, you've been listening to the Reverend William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, speaking at the Festival Center in Northwest D.C. this week. The campaign is in the midst of launching a national movement and is calling for the community to join them on Saturday, June 23rd on the National Mall. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. We're fighting for clean water, fighting for clean water. We shall not be moved. Come on, y'all. We're fighting for clean water. We shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the water. We shall not be moved. We're fighting for clean air. We're fighting for There are more than 1,100 coal ash sites throughout the country. Toxins from these sites gradually leach into our water bodies and groundwater or get released in catastrophic spills. Fact, at least 4 million families with children are being exposed to high levels of lead from drinking water and other sources. Next to speak today is Destiny Watford, a Baltimore native and member of the Free Your Voice group. In 2016, she was the Goldman Environment Prize winner for her work organizing residents in her neighborhood to defeat plans to build the nation's largest trash-burning incinerator less than one mile away from her school. Give her a round of applause. My name is Destiny, and I want to do a bit of an experiment with all of you. So I'm going to ask you and those of you who are not here with us to close your eyes. I want you to imagine a house. This house is one that's been around for literally a decade, maybe more. Its paint is peeling, it has boarded up doors and windows. It used to stand in a community, a community like any other. Open your eyes. This house that you imagined is the last house that ever stood in a community called Fairfield. And its peeling paint and boarded up doors and windows serve as evidence that the space surrounding it was once a community and like the neighborhood it was once a part of, 
once filled with orchards and trees to climb and waters to swim in, it too has disappeared from existence. Why did this happen? The homes in Fairfield came down after decades of people losing their lives to cancer. Of their community, the one that they loved, the one, the, the one that they fought for, being replaced by polluting industry in my neighborhood's backyard. So now, in the place of the community that these people once loved, there's the nation's largest medical waste incinerator. There's a coal pier with coal higher than what looks like to be mountains in our neighborhood. There is our city's landfill and other a kaleidoscope, a sea of polluting industries in my neighborhood's backyard. My neighborhood is called Curtis Bay. And in the group that I'm a part of and was a part of when I was in high school for your voice, we learned about Fairfield and learned about the consequence that was made or that happened to people that lived there. Fairfield was a predominantly black community in South Baltimore. And people that lived there were forced out of their community because of the polluting industry that the city paved way for instead of their health, instead of their neighborhood. And I mentioned Fairfield for two reasons. The first is that their story, as sad as it is, serves as a sort of parable of why it's so important to fight for environmental justice in our neighborhood. But second, the story that I'm about to tell you with my community's fight for environmental justice is a very long one. And that's saying that like people in my neighborhood have, have been fighting for our right to breathe clean air for generations. So when I was in high school, there was a plan to build the nation's largest trash burning incinerator proposed less than a mile away from my school. And when I first learned about the incinerator, to be perfectly honest, I didn't know what it is. And in case I'm not the only one in the room, an incinerator burns trash. This one would be producing energy. And it also releases a lot of toxic admissions. So the incinerator that was proposed in my neighborhood would have been was permitted to release 240 pounds of mercury every year, 1,000 pounds of lead. And this, of course, made us really angry. You know, like, we were high school students, we didn't know anything about this project, and now we're learning that it's going to be polluting our air, it's going to be putting our lives on the line, the lives of our friends and our families and our neighbors will be put at risk. And so... We came together thinking about how do we fight something like this. The incinerator proposed in our neighborhood was supported by our governor, who ran for president on a green platform. Yeah. <laughs> and our mayor, who supported the development as this holy grail of development. It would, according to them, solve the problem of two crises in Baltimore, the energy crisis and the waste crisis. But that's not true. It would have been putting our lives at risk. The people that live in South Baltimore, that lived in this frontline community, in my community, Curtis Bay. And so our challenge was figuring out how do we organize people around this issue. People have been dealing with environmental justice their entire lives. If they lived there, if they went to school there or worked there. 
And so our big challenge was how do we change this sort of passive acceptance of the way that things are, right? People accepting, I almost cursed, (laughs) accepting the bad things that are laid out before them, these toxic developments, and actually believe that we can make change. For us, we used art as a tool and storytelling, music and poetry and writing to share our story, to share our narrative and saying that like, we will not allow this to happen anymore. This is not what we want for the future of our community and we're going to fight for it. And long story short, (laughs) five years we fought for our community to stop this incinerator. We were met with a lot of, (laughs) a lot of challenges, everything from literally seeing the racism in our community coming out to play and in our city and the tensions of whose life is valued from like just being high school students. But through five years of fighting for our neighborhood with our community, we were able to win that victory and we won international recognition for our fight we stopped the incinerator, which is great. <laughs> Thank you. And it's really cool that we were able to do that. However, the incinerator isn't the first or last development of its kind, right? So our question, our big question was, if we know that the incinerator isn't the last kind of development that's going to be putting our lives at risk, that doesn't care about the future of our community or our children or our children's children, what can we do to make sure that developments like the incinerator do not happen in our neighborhood? So what we've been doing, and what I'm really excited to share with you about, and a big lesson that we've learned, is that we realize that the only way to stop developments that don't care about us, is by creating developments in our community. It's by having community-driven development. It's by literally having people who have been dealing with these environmental injustices, with who have been dealing with decisions being made behind closed doors, making the decisions of what happens in our neighborhood. And so we are creating a community land trust in our community. My time's up, but can I just say one more thing? (laughs) Okay, so we're building a community land trust, and that's really significant because for the first time in forever, we're actually making decisions about land in our neighborhood. And that has not been, when it comes to like communities that have been, that are poor, that are black, that are brown, that has never been the case, not in our neighborhood. So that's really exciting to share. And I'm happy that I could share some of that with you all. Fact. Since 1998, there have been 5,712 major oil and gas leaks or ruptures on U.S. pipelines. Fact. The Deepwater Horizon BP oil spill accounted for 95% of oil spilled in the past 50 years. Fact. The Department of Defense 
accounted for more than 70% of U.S. total greenhouse gas emissions in 2016. Fact. When Maria hit Puerto Rico, where the poverty rate was already 43.5%, almost an entire island lost access to electricity. Two months later, more than half of the island's residents still lacked power and about 9% lacked water. Our next speaker, Natalia Cardona, is the Justice and Equity Manager at 350.org. She holds a Master's in International Affairs with a specialization on poverty and developments from the New School in New York. Her work experience spans issues of economic justice, extractive industries, indigenous rights, women's rights, militarism, and peace. Natalia is originally from Guatemala and was forced to immigrate to Canada with her family at the age of 11. Welcome to the stage. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for having me, and I'm really thankful to the Poor People's Campaign for inviting me. These issues are really important to me because I also grew up in poverty. Because of this experience, I really do believe that the climate justice movement has the potential to create system-wide changes that will ripple through existing systems of oppression and break them. As Italine said, I was born in Guatemala, and I was a refugee at a really young age, at the age of 11. And that experience has framed my work in climate justice because as climate disasters hit around the world, millions and millions of people are being displaced. And as a young refugee girl, I had a very specific experience. And so did my brothers and sisters. We, along with our single dad, ended up in Canada. In Canada, we experienced poverty, and I thought it was normal because, hey, we had a single dad who couldn't speak the language and four kids who were under 13. But what I've realized is that that's not necessary. Poverty is not necessary. A few are allowed to hoard the wealth, and that's what we need to challenge. That's what should be shamed, not poor people. The other thing that I've grown to learn and know because of many mentors in the movement is that climate change is not a single-issue fight. That's why I am honored that 350 endorsed this campaign, because that showed that people in the climate movement and organizations like 350 are willing to say and make those connections. And we've been encouraged them to do that because we understand that to secure the lasting change that we need, we have to unite across movements for justice and to take the power back that rightfully belongs in the hands of the people. In the past year, communities from California to Puerto Rico have been rocked by fires, floods, and storms. And everywhere, the people already rendered vulnerable by poverty and racism bear the brunt of climate disasters. And in many cases, they're still recovering from that damage. Thousands of Puerto Ricans have been without power for 258 days. We're approaching a year because of Hurricane Maria. And I knew hurricane season started just last week. For low-income communities and communities of color, the disproportionate burden of pollution will only increase. We just heard somebody talk about that. Black people are 75% more likely to live near a toxic oil and gas facilities like refineries. 
and about 13% of black children have asthma compared to just 7% of white kids. And these locations, these facilities are usually in people of color communities or poor communities. And why is that? Because companies prefer to take advantage of communities with little or no political power. And I'll say this, I live in, in southwest Philadelphia. We live really near our refinery. I have asthma, and my asthma has gotten worse throughout the years that I've lived there. I pray that my daughter won't get asthma, too. As climate change worsens, it's low-income people and people of color who likes the means to protect themselves. 40% of Americans right now say that they don't have enough money to cover an unexpected expense of $400. The cost of preparing and evacuating for a climate disaster it can quickly top that amount. And we've seen that as we've been responding to climate disasters around the country. Climate change is layered on top of other injustice, from unemployment, poverty, racism, militarization, incarceration, increased deportations to the loss of health care. When Harvey happened in Houston, we heard many stories from undocumented people who couldn't even leave their houses because ICE had threatened to deport them. So they were left in flooded homes with children with mold in their homes. The global climate crisis has become a multiplier of these injustices. For instance, when Superstore Sandy hit New York City, hundreds of thousands of New Yorkers lived in mandatory evacuation zones, but only 6,800 showed up at emergency shelters. Federal emergency workers soon discovered why. It was because many low-income, elderly, and disabled residents of New York City's public housing complexes were stranded in their dark and cold apartments without heat, backup generators, emergency boilers, or working elevators. The latter prevented many of these residents from descending multiple flights of stairs. And others endured these conditions because they had no other affordable place to stay or no reasonable means of leaving their neighborhoods because mass transit was shut down, among other reasons. In the five years since that happened, these communities in the East Coast and many families are still struggling to get back to their, on their feet and to their homes. The most dangerous fossil fuel projects, refineries, pipelines, and more are often built in historically exploited and disenfranchised communities, and often communities of color. So it's no wonder that these communities, from Standing Rock to southern Louisiana, where the Bayou Bridge Pipeline is going through right now, are also epicenters of resistance and leadership and inspiration for all of us. Their demands for their survival and for the rights of future generations are pushing local, national, and global leaders towards real solutions to the climate crisis. So we must join them. This is a call to join these people on the ground and fight for a world that cares for the planet and moves us away from systems of oppressions. That's why this September 8th, we're mobilizing for something called RISE, along with frontline communities in California, to call on world leaders gathering in California for the Global Climate Action Summit to take real action and stand up against the fossil fuel industry and listen to the voices of those who are most impacted. We're calling on those leaders to say no more fossil fuels out of the ground. We want renewable energy and we want jobs for our communities. Because for those of us like me who were born in poverty and are part of the climate movement, the struggle is not just to save the planet. It's to save ourselves from systems of oppressions that allow a few to hoard the wealth while the rest of us struggle to survive. The climate justice movement has a huge amount of potential to have a system-wide effect to not only care for the planet and move our economy away from dirty energy, but also to make sure that fossil-free transition is a just one for workers and communities. Today's fossil fuel economy directs the biggest profits to a small, wealthy elite and the biggest disadvantages to the rest of us. 
fossil fuel billionaires exploit the poorest and most vulnerable to prop up their destructive business model. Now we need to come together to make sure it's fossil fuel elites, not our communities who bear the cost of this destruction. The dirty energy system is a system of planetary destruction, and its paradigm is racist, it's sexist, it's anti-immigrant, it's imperialist, and it's oppressive. But in an alternative world, a renewable energy future doesn't have to be. As we work towards a just transition, we're envisioning a society where the burdens of the transition, retraining workers, remediating toxic lands, building new infrastructures and technologies, are justly shared across groups. Likewise, a just transition requires that the benefits of transitioning to clean renewable systems, vibrant communities and wild spaces, democratic control of energy production, economic benefits and employment opportunities are shared equitably. It's our hope that this transition will not only move us away from fossil fuels, but also to a more equal society that dismantles systems of oppressions which sustain the dirty fuel economy and the current capitalist system. Thank you. And Destiny Watford of Baltimore and Natalie Cardona of Philadelphia will have the last word on today's show. I want to thank again Gerald Horn for joining me. The music we played this hour included Gil Scott Heron, It's Your World, and music from the Poor People's Campaign Mass Meeting at Union Temple Baptist Church in Southeast D.C. on Sunday, June 3, 2018. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. On the Ground Show is also on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and Google Play. I'm Esther Averam. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.